In this episode, Lee Ramsden, CFO at Trulio, talks about the critical nature of the CEO-CFO relationship, explains why intellectual honesty matters, and emphasizes how tailoring your communication to your audience is an increasingly critical skill for successful CFOs. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We love your feedback. Lee, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thanks very much for having me today, Ross. I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. Lee, I always like to start by understanding how you got to where you are today in, in your position of CFO, which of course is the second time that, that you've been in that position. So can you share a little bit about the journey you've been on? And what I noticed as well, it's interesting, is that you've dipped in and out of advisory before settling in industry and, and in the technology sector. Can you speak a little bit about that journey and, and, and how you made those choices? I started out my financial career similar to many that are in CFO jobs at a public accounting firm. So I started articling at PricewaterhouseCoopers and spent a few years there doing audits and really audits of technology companies as my career progressed there. Ended up stepping out into industry, worked at a small data communications company for a few years in a controller role. And then I made the step back into the audit world. That was a decision I made Uh, at that point in my career. I kind of thought it was something that I wanted to go back and explore. And after being there for a couple of years, I had found out that the, the audit world and the financial advisory world had changed fairly significantly in the wake of Enron. And there was a whole lot of regulation and such that made, for me, the job just not quite as fun as, as I thought it was going to be. So I ended up from there, you know, taking a role at a software company and I ended up spending over a decade there before coming to Trulu about 18 months ago. And what was it that had changed that remarkably like pre-Enron versus post-Enron? Like earlier in my career, I really liked to use my analytical skills to uh, assess whatever work I was looking at. So when performing, say, audit work, I was using my analytical skills to compare one thing to another or make sure that the results that I was looking at made sense in light of all the other information available. What had happened in the audit world back then was a whole lot of regulation and a whole lot more prescriptive guidelines came in on, on how to perform that work as the auditor. And, and I, I just found that it was more of a tick box exercise than really using my analytical skills. So that's why I didn't really take to that kind of work at that point in my career. So then when you finally made that move the second time to move back out of advisory and into industry, what was that transition like? Yeah, so I, I think that was fairly easy for me, to be honest. I had been in industry before in a tech company. And so stepping back in, I, I kind of felt like I knew what I had to do. I, I was in a role that was really around financial reporting and managing the, the finance team and all the stuff that normally falls under that type of role. So it was all stuff I had done before. The change there was that it was at a larger 
organization uh, where I had to build the team more. But when I went into the company there, it was at a size that I could wrap my arms around. I was still doing a fair bit at that early and in my days there. And then over about 10 years, you know, built the team out to the point where I wasn't doing as much anymore, which is kind of the, the goal that everybody wants to get to. And then, of course, that's where you first took on the role of CFO like on a, on an interim basis towards the end of your time at Absolute. Is that correct? That's right. The uh, existing CFO had decided to leave the organization and I stepped in as on an interim basis. And uh, we did a lot of stuff, actually, in that time. It was during the pandemic. We actually cross-listed the company from the Toronto Stock Exchange over to the NASDAQ. So really going through all of the investment banking and uh, everything that goes along with uh, a going public transaction in the United States. So that was tremendously valuable experience. Was that a huge step up, actually, like taking on that CFO role for the first time? Or was it something that actually it just felt like a very natural progression? It felt like a natural progression. I had been around a lot of those conversations for many years, often in a supporting role of the CFO that was in place previously. So I kind of knew all the types of things that would need to be discussed, the types of things that would have to be said. I was used to operating in a public company environment. And uh, yeah, it just felt like the the next natural step in my career. And so then when you're describing or maybe like reflecting on that role of a CFO, like what did you find were the big priorities and the more challenging things? And again, what were the pieces that you thought were very straightforward and simple? Because it's a very broad remit. One of the things that's interesting is when you're in a CFO role at a public company, a large part of the role obviously is market facing and investor facing. And, and that's something that depending on your background in finance, you might not have had a lot of exposure to in your past, you know, if you're just dealing with numbers all the time or whatnot. So you really have to flip into that kind of almost marketing mode. And someone once told me that every role in the world, you're in sales and of, of some description. And whether you're selling some employee internally on a policy or, or what, what have you, um, you do have to get into that mindset where you're thinking about what's positive about the company, why you're excited about it, how those things manifest themselves in the numbers and bridging that kind of financial acumen into the marketing story for the stock really. That was the large, the largest part of my learning in that time for sure. And you become more of an ambassador for the company in the markets. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, and, and people are looking to you to to provide insight into the business itself, obviously, but also into what the future holds. And, and what you might see happening in the market. And those are the things that you really have to spend a lot of time thinking about before getting into those conversations. Well, the point of right, representing the company like externally with investors, whether it's you're a private company or, or a public company, it seems to have always been a firm part of the CFO role. But one thing that seems to be emerging, and we've heard it from many of our guests, is that the overall scope of the CFO is growing over time and you're becoming more of a strategic driver in the business and a, an advisor to the CEO and so forth. Is that something that you've seen in your experiences, it both prior to becoming a CFO and then during the last few years where you have been one? Yeah, I think on that point, you really need to be the the business partner for the CEO. They've got a, obviously a really wide mandate. They need to be in control of the entire organization and in control of everything that's happening to the business. So what comes with that is a couple things. Like one is that they need to rely on someone almost absolutely when it comes to the numbers. So you have to know the numbers, you have to know how the business is working, and they need to not worry about that at all. So that's a huge part of your role. But I think the other point that, that you mentioned 
is really being that business partner and that advisor to the CEO. So if the CEO has a, a gut instinct about something or sees something happening in the market, you need to be able to be there to either validate or sometimes invalidate some of those assumptions and help them course correct how they're viewing the world going forward. So does that mean then when you're thinking of, and you maybe you were even when you're considering your recent role as your current role as CFO, that you need to think really carefully about that partnership and that relationship with whoever is in CEO position at the time? Yeah, and they need to have a lot of confidence in you. So, you know, that confidence can be built over a short period of time or sometimes a long period of time. But I think that's something you have to be really mindful of is thinking about how to make sure that the CEO of the organization has a lot of confidence in the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have to have a lot of confidence in the work that you're doing yourself as well. And so then you're talking to other people who are considering CFO moves, or maybe they're looking to the to move for the first time into a position as CFO. What advice do you have for people like that to make sure that they can build the most productive and, and effective relationship with those CEOs? There's a couple of things there. So one is like you really have to get clarity from the CEO about what their expectations are from the role. CEOs are people and people all have different interpretations of topics, you know, depending on the individual. So getting clarity from that individual about what their expectations are really helps frame how you need to think about your role and, and how you operate going forward. I think the other thing is to, to think about is the role of the CFO is very broad at this point. There's a lot of table stakes, accounting, financial reporting, budgeting, forecasting, all of that stuff. There's a lot of more deep business analysis now that needs to go on. You know, there's a melding of finance and data science that I've seen. So be very thoughtful about what those things look like and really understand what information you're going to have to be providing. And then if there's a gap in your skill set, because not every person comes up in their career and an expert in all of these areas, you need to identify those gaps in your skill set and then figure out how you're going to cover those gaps. Are you going to do some learning yourself? Are you going to hire around you to make sure that you've got those areas covered? What's your strategy going to be around all of those things? And presumably as well, is it the larger the company or the faster the, the company's scaling, the more that you need to address those gaps up front because you're going to get stretched beyond your even your capacity very, very quickly. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that's one thing is that here at Trulio, you know, we are scaling very quickly. So there's been a lot of growth in a very short period of time. And we've been playing catch up a little bit for sure over the past 18 months, but we're getting to be in a much better spot. Well, I guess that's the, the almost the hallmark of any scale up CFO is the, the constant building and rebuilding as you outgrow whatever it is, your team or your operating model that you once had. Yeah. And, you know, when you step into a role, you get handed a situation that exists before you got there. And essentially, in many cases, what you're handed when you start a new role was completely, you know, appropriate for the, the stage that the company was at before you got there. And I think part of the challenge is kind of bridging the gap from those norms and those protocols and those those structures that were there in place before you and building for the future for what you know the future needs to be. So when you come into that new role at Trulio, you were obviously, I guess, inheriting a structure that was right for the, the previous era of the company. I'm sure there was a lot for you to do and rebuild as ever, and, you're, and the company's growing like crazy. Obviously, at that time, it was in the midst of the pandemic as well, just after the first lo like global lockdown. Um, how did you decide on your priorities and where to focus and where to start when you're taking on that role? That's a really tough one. And I've been through this a couple of times in my career, but 
you know, there's really no substitute for literally just writing all of the priorities down, putting them down on a piece of paper or a whiteboard or, or whatever you're using. And then, you know, just taking stock of it and realizing some of the enormity of things that have to happen and realize it's not all going to be done in a day, in a week, in a month, or even a quarter or two, or even a year. I mean, there's a lot of things that just take a long time to get to. So it's a simple answer, but it's really just taking stock of all of those things that need to happen and then going through and stack ranking them on a priority basis, given your knowledge of what's happening in the business and and what the demands are of the information that's being asked of you. And then just being really intellectually honest with yourself and being okay with not getting it all done overnight. I mean, most people in roles like this tend to be high performers and want things done kind of yesterday, but it's just not realistic. It's realistic from the perspective that you could grind people or grind yourself to work 80 hours a week to get a whole bunch of stuff done, but you have to step back and ask yourself if that's really going to be effective in terms of getting the required outputs that you want. Because if too much change is forced too quickly, people just turn off. It's such an artistry to that because not enough change. And of course, the company's not growing and developing at the pace it needs to. Too much change and you get the, we used to have this expression uh, many moons ago when I worked at Accenture, there was a theme that they were discussing, which was the idea of like future shock, which is where there's so much change that's happening or or perceived to be happening at any one time that it almost leads to like a stasis rather than more acceleration. It leads to deceleration and then people just becoming overwhelmed. And I guess it's such an artistry for any new leader, certainly a CFO. Yeah, I think that there's a pacing that's important for change. And and it's also bringing people along the journey and showing them small iterative changes that you keep implementing consistently over time. And then after some longer period of time, you look back and think, wow, look where we were and look where we've got to. And I think people really like that. They like looking back and seeing that they've really changed and gotten a lot accomplished in a period of time. Do you have any rules of thumb? This is an age old question that nobody has the perfect answer for, but it's like prioritizing between the urgent and the important. So it's really easy to put the urgent things at the top of that stack rank that you mentioned, but sometimes there are these underpinning things like infrastructure, foundations, often it's like systems as well that you need to put in place that are clearly not urgent, often not urgent, but they're critical to scale. So how do you balance those two criteria up? That's another interesting concept. So there is that concept of urgency versus importance. And ideally, you've got a confluence of those things where something's urgent and important, then it becomes very obvious that needs to be dealt with earlier on. In answering that question, you know, I think about the various stakeholders that a CFO has to be uh, accountable to. So you've got your CEO, you've got a board or investors, You've got your employees, you've got the rest of the organization, all the the rest of the employees in the company. And so all of those different audiences have different things that they expect from the CFO. I think sometimes you have to bear in mind, like some things are urgent. It might be a board matter or some kind of reporting that needs to be spun up for the investors or, or what have you. And those things obviously need to take priority. But I think it's a matter of making sure that when you're dealing with those urgent things, that you're doing it in a way that is also building for the future so that you're not just wasting your time in a fire drill that that you don't get any value from in the future. So that's how I like to think about it is 
most things are important. If they're on your radar, they're probably important, at least to some degree. And then it's just managing the urgency and then making sure that the stuff that's really urgent is being done in a way that you can build on in the future and make it less of an urgent fire drill in the future. That principle that you're outlining, is that something you also try to embed in your teams in the way that they approach their work for their departments and their partners in the business? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to talk we'll talk to our staff and our employees about all of these concepts. And for a lot of the employees, you have to really frame up the context. If you're dealing with a financial analyst and you're asking them to do a task, I think providing them the context under which you're asking them to do that, why it's being done, the importance of it, I think that not only helps empower them and makes them feel important in the tasks that they're doing, but it also actually improves the quality of their work because they're not second guessing or wondering about why am I doing this? And so if they understand the questions that are being asked, then they can hopefully provide better answers to those questions. And coming back to that, actually, that point of like asking the questions and then guiding your teams through whatever the process of running a project or an initiative, a recent guest described almost like a barbell type system that he employed with his teams where he said he would be really involved at the beginning, say for a new project or initiative, and he'd be really involved in the beginning, so with clear expectations, clear brief, kind of leave them alone for a long period of time, and then closer to delivery, come back in and then actually contribute assess, quality check, and so forth. And obviously that's like a standard practice and idea that many have employed, but I I liked the visualization of that. And also I thought it was very relevant, especially for an executive that's trying to like oversee a lot of different initiatives all at once. Is that something, that type of ideal, something that you apply or do you have a different approach to it? Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand my perspective and and how I think of the world. So I do like to talk to them about that. You know, I'll say this is how I think of this type of thing, or this is the types of information that I like to look at when considering this problem or issue that that you're looking into. And then helping shape how they're thinking about that as well. And then get them kind of thinking on the same mode that you're thinking. So once you're on the same wavelength, then the quality of the work that they do tends to improve. And it it also aligns more with the end product that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. That can be challenging, however. People are people. Everybody thinks of things in different ways. And I think one of the challenges when you're in this seat is not being too directive, you know, telling them exactly what it needs to look like, but really looking for the outcome Mm -hmm. and helping guide them along that journey. And then focusing in on the team as well and the the team that you've built and are leading at Trulio right now. It's an incredibly uh, exciting time to be an employee. There are lots of opportunities out there. It's a very Well, it certainly was up until maybe recent weeks and months uh, or so, like a very hot market. And it was very difficult for companies to retain staff and hire their best staff. That's changing a little bit with the, as the market turns. But the it's, it's something that has been a big challenge for many CFOs and executives. So how have you approached that challenge with your team, like trying to keep your best people, but also in, encourage and attract great people from other companies for the roles that you're looking to build? We're lucky at Trulu. It's a pretty attractive organization that people want to come work at. So you've got a bit of that branding out there that has been helpful, but that's kind of you know, the environment more than the specifics. So really when recruiting, you know, I I like to talk to people about the opportunity at the company. Like this organization is doing really well. 
We've got really great products and a really important part of the market that has been underserved for a long time. And that's showing in the results. And and you're going to be able to come into this organization and work on really interesting things and grow yourself and, and stretch your skills and help build. We're building a finance organization from very small into something that's going to be very impactful for this company going forward. And people contributing to that and being able to be a part of that, I find is a very attractive feature for people that are looking to grow their careers. And and have you spotted in some of the conversations you've been having with candidates, are there expectations and demands changing? Because there's a, certainly something that out there in the marketplace where it's no longer just about compensation. It's no longer just about role title. There are other factors that are coming in there connected to the broader employee value proposition. Have you seen that in your recruiting process? It's an interesting time coming out of the pandemic. I mean, people have been working from home for a long time and various people have various views about that. And some people want to continue working from home most of the time. Some people really like being in the office. So trying to find that balance with every single individual is interesting. And those conversations are coming up every time about what does it look like when I'm going to be working and where am I going to be working and and that kind of thing. So that's a piece of it that I think has changed a lot. I think that um, for my finance team, I do like them to be together Mm -hmm. at least some of the time. I think that's the only way to help build a really cohesive team and build those personal relationships that are so important when you go through your work life. And it's been interesting building that team during the pandemic when we have mostly still been working from home until really the past month or two. We have been in the office periodically, but it's come and gone with various waves of COVID-19. So I think we're hopefully at the point now that we can be more consistent about being in the office and being together and then building those relationships and really forming that team. So how are you managing that? What's your approach to trying to get hybrid, right? Because everyone's trying to do hybrid, but there's just like a a thousand different variants of it. Um, So what are you experimenting with at the moment? There's critical times when I think the finance organization needs to be together. So that's the month end close, for example, or being together to, to talk about putting some information together for the other executives or for the board of directors. I think those are times when you get so much more accomplished if you're just sitting in the same room talking through yeah. things as opposed to talking on Zoom or, or whatever video application you're using. And I think that like I've found that there's times where, you know, if I'm sitting working at home and I have something quick I need to ask someone, I won't do it. I'll just say to myself, oh, I, I can wait for a couple of yeah. days and I'll ask them next time we have our weekly catch up or, or whatnot. But when you're in the office together, it's literally just a five second pop out the door, go walk over and, and ask the question. And I find that just being together just gets things done more, way more expediently. So I think looking forward, we do want to get the team together at those critical times, especially, mm-hmm. and also continue to be respectful of some of the benefits that people have had in being able to work hybrid and, and work from home at least part of the time. Is that the similar approach being applied across the company as well, or more specific to finance? No, I mean, that's a company-wide philosophy, I'd say. And we continue to work on it. And really being able to attract people to get back into the office is very important for us. We're, you know, moving offices, developing a, a brand new office for our employees to come into. So we do want to provide a really phenomenal kind of employee experience to be in the office. Given the backdrop that 
people have been used to working from home for so long and and there is going to be some give and take to get people back in working yeah it's a it's a constant debate that you see across like almost every industry and in, in every country well in, in certainly in north america and in, in europe there's a big movement and i often find like when you're on linkedin looking at posts some of the most contentious are the ones about is it is it remote is it full in person office mm-hmm. experience there's definitely polarizing debates on either side yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this kind of shakes out over the next five years. I'd say. Yeah, and I think yeah, what's interesting also about it is that clearly there's no one right way. There's just like different companies will choose different paths, and it almost there there will be talent pools that are probably more suited to one way of working than the other. Yeah, for sure, and and in specific roles, specifically in finance, if there's certain roles that are just more well suited, you know, being at home or being kind of on your own, I would say. Back when everyone worked in an office, you might say you'd lock yourself in a room and put your head down and get stuff done. The new version of locking yourself in a room is just staying home and working from home, I think. But, you know, we'll figure it out. You know, our company will figure it out and every other organization will figure it out in the way that works best for them. Yeah, exactly. And so the room becomes your bedroom rather than like, or your living room uh, rather than anything else. Um, so then thinking about the team, of course, as well, and you're talking about the importance of bringing people together and, and how that transcends the distributed or the remote working. One other thing that, is, that we often touch on, of course, is like the use of technology and, and not the the Zooms and the Teams and the and the Slacks of the world, but more about like finance-specific tools and technologies, all the way from infrastructure like ERPs up to this new breed of tools. What's your view on the, like, the use of different technology and tools uh, that are tr- that's trying to help do a few few things in finance. One is free up your team from the historical admin that, that exists in many different finance roles. And then secondly, is like trying to make sense of like the proliferation of data to forecast and provide better insights to the business. So are there particular technologies and investments that you and your team are making? This topic's interesting. It's an area that I've evolved a lot over the course of my career. To be totally honest, like earlier in my career, I was pretty skeptical of non-human processes within a finance function. I I thought there's no substitute for, you know, the eyeballs looking at stuff, but that's something that's definitely, I've had to evolve uh, over time. I mean, I'm very open to having technology conversations now. I I think you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. and learning about all the different tools that are available out there. You know, you're doing yourself and you're doing your organization a disservice if you're not looking into it. I think you touched on it. I mean, one area that there's been a lot of growth and, and benefit is just around the automation of really mundane routine tasks. Mm. And it's not just the finance team. I think that's the point that asking someone working in marketing to spend some amount of time during the week doing coding of invoices or asking someone to code a taxi invoice to every department, that's really low value add and boring. And people don't like to do that. And I'm pretty sure no one sits around at the end of their career and says, oh, I loved all that time I spent coding all those FedEx invoices to all the departments. Like, And because people don't like to do it, it often doesn't get done well. Yeah. And then the finance team has to come along and fix it all. And there's some really great solutions out there in this area using AI and, and things of that nature to help with some of that really mundane but important day-to-day task within the finance organization. I think there's three other areas that I think about technology. We're all in finance. We've been in accounting or corporate finance or what have you. So we all love spreadsheets and we all use spreadsheets and everybody will always use spreadsheets. But complex spreadsheets are minefields and it doesn't take a lot to mess up a formula or a link. We all think we're 
Excel wizards, but we've all made these errors. I've made them myself. So any tech that kind of helps automate or fortify the strength of really complex modeling and whatnot um, is really important. You know, we can't forget that part of the finance function that's really important is that role of a service organization internally to, to the rest of the employees. So improving how an employee interacts with the finance team, whether that be through payroll or through expense reporting, or like I touched on invoice coding, is a great way to improve the employee experience and get almost an app-like experience for their employees as they're they're performing their job duties. Some of this stuff is just table stakes. It's very simple, basic stuff I'm talking about, but a lot of organizations don't make these investments, I've found. Lastly, when I think about this, I think you have to use the data that you have at hand at your disposal to help plan for the Mm -hmm. future. I saw this quote that said, treat forecasting as a data science exercise. And and really, you don't know what you have until you have someone take a look at it. And a lot of people that come up through accounting or financial, corporate finance, or any of those streams, they're not necessarily data people. So Having someone look at it or any tools that kind of bring together a lot of those disparate data sets into something that you can analyze and use for forecasting is probably a great investment to make on the technology side. That's really interesting. There have been many mentions of like moving modeling into things that are more scalable, more repeatable, less prone to error. Second, the the last one you mentioned about forecasting, again, that's been a, a, a common theme. But I think that idea of improving any touch point that employees have with different finance processes is a really interesting one. And and few people have mentioned that because that could lead to a whole host of investments and process changes. And it also actually quite interestingly really prioritizes that actually finance can have a big impact, not only on the customer experience, but the employee experience. And the better that is, the, the better the whole environment will be for, for everyone in the company. It's huge. You know, if you're talking to an employee in sales or in in product or or in development and you ask them what their view of the finance organization is in their company, Mm -hmm. it's not how good your board slides are. It's not how good your uh, monthly report of KPIs is or anything like that because they're not seeing that. And they're not interested in in it a lot of the time. But what they do know is like, how quickly do I get paid when I submit expenses? Is my payroll right? What does that look like? Is it easy for me? And so making those investments and understanding your role as that internal service organization, I think is super important. I I think a lot about that and talk to my team a lot about that. I like that. I like that because it dovetails very nicely with the idea of being a business partner. But often business partnering is mentioned when it's about finance advising leaders, not just everyone in the sales team or the marketing team, for example, whereas the idea of being like internal service providers means you think much more holistically about the impact you can have. Yeah, I think you put it very well. Lee, as we are uh, drawing the interview to a close, I often like to ask, and I would love to ask you the same thing, like for anyone that's listening who would like to emulate you and, and one day be a finance leader and a CFO, what advice would you give to them so that they could be prepared and be effective when the time comes? Yeah, I think there's a few things there. So I, I touched on this earlier, but really taking stock of your skill set and understanding where you need to make improvements or learn And then figuring out a plan to make it happen is really important because no one's perfect in every area. Everyone has areas of strength and weakness. So really being thoughtful about making those improvements, making those learnings, or figuring out how you're going to kind of backfill 
some of those weaker areas is, is super important. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing to think about as you approach the role. I think communication, we haven't addressed it directly, but it's come up a few times. Really think about your ability to communicate. I think that's something that I try to think a lot about, knowing your audience and tailoring your messaging for for your audience. I mean, a lot of financial professionals can understand the business and the underlying mm-hmm. metrics. And understanding all that's very complicated by its nature. And a lot of people have that ability to understand that. But the job is really around simplifying it in a way that that people can understand. I mean, that that's where you can really add a lot of value. So understanding that communication piece. Always asking why or so what. I mean, these are things that I'm sure lots of people have talked about, but having that intellectual curiosity, really getting in depth and understanding the business you're in is super important because you need to have that context to add meaning to the numbers. That's really important. And then lastly, it sounds maybe a bit obvious, but really understanding the unit economics of what your company does is super, super important. Like understanding those value drivers, understanding what gives your organization the right to charge the prices it does. Uh, what value does the customer get from the solution? You really have to understand that in order to provide color on the company's business and, and also to explain it to a person that doesn't understand your business at the same level you are. And thinking about everything is almost like a microtransaction. Like we take these inputs, we charge that. This is why we can do that. This is the the competitive advantage or this is the market we're in. And being able to articulate that in a way that makes sense is, is really important and, you know, really imperative for a CFO. I love the last one because it's so easily forgotten or neglected, like where you've got an idea about it, but perhaps not in depth. But it's very hard to sell the story of a company unless you understand that intimately, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and like I said, just making it consumable for whatever audience that you're talking to. Generally, the audience you're talking to is not an expert in your business the way you are. So really, you know, being able to distill it down into something that they understand and explaining it on those terms is really important. Lee, I think that's fantastic advice for, for any of our listeners to, to take on board. So just lastly, like to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Ross. It's been great. One last thing, we want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.